Revelations 2 to 3, chapters 2 and 3, we've seen messages that our Lord Jesus Christ has given to seven distinct churches. We are in church number six. The next message, Lord willing, will be church number seven, lest God changes my mind. And each of these churches represented distinct church age. I believe the church in Philadelphia represents, if you would, perhaps our day and age right now. I believe that the church in Philadelphia really represented a, a revival period. A revival period of the church. It was a time of great missions movement. It was, represents the time of the Hudson Taylors and the William Careys and the Jonathan Goforths. It represents the time of the David Livingstons, those great missionaries who went and just went out to those continents when nobody else had gone there before them, and they paved the way. I believe the church of Philadelphia represents the great preaching period of the Charles Spurgeons, the D.L. Moody's, of the John R. Rice's, of the George W. Truitt's, men like that. I mean, we go on and on and on, the great preaching of men like that, of the Mordecai Hams and people like that. I believe that they're just, if you ever go back and study the, the rich history of our, of our independent Baptist movement and the great history of fundamentalists, I, I believe that you'll see some of that there. The church of Philadelphia was a church that Christ loved. It was a church that received no rebuke, but was highly commended by our Lord. In fact, it's the only church of the seven that was not rebuked by our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it was the most highly commendable church of them all. Now, I realize that we saw over there that there was the church at, at Pergamus as well. There too, that we, uh, or, or, or that received uh, or Smyrna that received Jesus' uh, uh, commendation as well. There too, but not to the same degree here as the church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia was thirty miles southeast of Sardis. It was a very significant church. It was a strategically located church. Where that church, where that city was at, three continents converged on it. Where that city was at, east and west, north and south, it was a great hub, a place for the Roman Empire and the Grecian culture to expand. From west to east and north to south, the highways that carried that movement, the commerce, the Roman Empire, much transpired because of that, that church, uh, because of that location there. The spread of the Grecian culture in all directions was foremost because of that. It was also situated in a dangerous location. It was a place very close to a major volcano. In AD 17, a major earthquake hit the city of Philadelphia, and the city was destroyed. It was rebuilt, and culture still thrived. And commerce still thrived, but people who lived there tended to come and go quite a bit. They tended to come and go, and our Lord and Savior makes mention of that there. It was a place where people perhaps didn't get their roots in as deeply as they could have because they were scared about the volcano exploding again or erupting and people coming and going. It was a city like all the other cities, its peer cities, that had temples dedicated to various gods and to the Caesars of the Roman Empire. It was a city in that place that, that recognizes citizens. If a citizen has done something very monumental, they would make a pillar and put the name of that citizen on that pillar and place that pillar in one of the temples of their gods or one of the temples of the Caesars to acknowledge the monumental thing that that person did. But in spite of all those secular things, the church there in Philadelphia, in spite of all those secular things, is known because of a fundamental Baptist church that was there. And that was this church at Philadelphia. It was a church that as we read this, this state, the statements here, it was a church 
that was evangelistic. It was a church that was so many. It was a church that was fundamentally sound. It was a church doctrinally sound. It was a church where it was known to be always in a state of constant revival. God wants his church to be in a constant state of revival. It was a church that was on fire for God. As we'll see tonight, it was a church that was given a golden opportunity. It was a church that had a wonderful relationship with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a church that was given golden opportunities. I want you to see three things tonight with me about this church at Philadelphia. I want you to see some things that, are, that we would want to, that would be good for us to model, that would be good for us to mimic, it would be good for us to realize that these are some things that are, that are incredible traits and important traits about a church that's striving for Jesus Christ. Number one, I want you to notice in verse seven, we see the Lord's character. Just as Jesus started out with all the other churches, he starts off by making a statement about who he is. And I think he does that to remind us that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. And Jesus Christ is the founder of the church. He's the chief shepherd of the church. He begins this letter by saying, These things to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord of the church. Notice the first thing we see is that Jesus represents represents that he is absolute. He is absolute. He says, these things saith he that is holy. You know, it's interesting. Of all the things we must acknowledge, we acknowledge a lot of things about God, but we must remember the thing that is most utmost, the characteristic, the attribute that is utmost is the fact that he is holy. God is holy. Holiness is his essence. His holiness is his sinlessness. His holiness represents the fact that he's absolute, and his absoluteness represents that he is holy. None can be compared to his holiness. The greatest thing that should catch us in awe, the greatest thing that should make us bow, the greatest thing that, should make you, that brings us to worship is the holiness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The holiness of God it should be what most captures our attention. His holiness is what we worship. His holiness is what changes us. Isaiah wrote about the holiness of God. He saw those angelic beings surround the throne of God as they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. His holiness should change us. His holiness is what is essential. Holy is he. We see his absoluteness in his holiness. But notice, secondly, we not only see his absolute, but we also see that he's authentic. We see the authenticity of our Lord. The Bible says, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true. Well, we're going through COVID-19. It's sad there's so many conflicting statements from, from authorities that supposedly should know what's going on. And as laymen, we ask the question, what's true? What's the truth? I want to tell you tonight, Jesus Christ is the truth. He is all true. He's full of grace and truth. You can trust him. He is the way, the truth, and the light. And that's important because when you go to church, when the Bible is open, you want to know what is the truth. And the word of God is truth. Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I'm thankful tonight we possess the truth. Jesus does not lie and he cannot lie. That is an immutable fact. Jesus is the living word. Jesus is truth. As truth, you can trust him. As truth, you can have faith in him. As truth, you can completely find the fact that he's reliable and faithful to you. We see that Jesus is authentic. We see that Jesus is absolute. But notice we see Jesus in his authority. See, he writes to the church at Philadelphia, 
He speaks to them about attributes that they already knew, that they already worship, that they already revered. And I want to tell you tonight, because these church, this church acknowledged his holiness and acknowledged that he was true and acknowledged that he held the key, because the Bible says, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. They were acknowledging the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This was a church, because of that, that Christ had an incredible message for. Now, what does he mean here by this authority? He that has the key of David. Whoever has the keys has authority. They can open and shut doors. They get you in, they get you out. They have authority. They have power. He's referring, when he talks about the key of David, he takes us back to Isaiah chapter 22. If you'll turn there, please. Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 to 22. In Isaiah 22, we have the reference there about a man by the name of Eliakim. Eliakim replaced a predecessor that was corrupt. And the Lord was telling Isaiah, he acknowledged Eliakim, and gave him authority. In Isaiah chapter twenty, verse uh, chapter twenty-two, it says this in verse twenty: "And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah." And notice this in verse twenty-two: "And the key of the house of David." Will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. The Lord was saying this. I'm giving to Eliakim the key of the house of David. He will be able to unlock the treasure house. He will be able to unlock everything that is necessary. He had authority, and he was given power. Eliakim is a type of Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ said about this, He is the one that has the key of David. He opens and no man shuts. I think about tonight the keys of salvation. I think about the fact that God vested into Noah back in, back in Genesis 6 and 7 to preach the gospel. He told that world he was in, he told that, that antediluvian world, he said you need to repent and turn towards God. He says I'm building a ark. The ark is, is 300 yards long. He said, I'm building this ark, and you need to come into this ark if you want to be saved from torrential rains and a flood that's going to come. The world during that time did not understand, nor did it want to understand, the concept of a flood and rain. They never had anything like that. And God had given him an open door. He said, the door is open. But the day came when God said, after 100 years of preaching, he said, come thou and all thy house into the ark. And only Noah and his household entered in. And then the day came when God shut that that door. God held the key that opened that door, and God had the key that shut the door. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 7, and the Lord shut the door. My friend, tonight, there's going to be a time that's coming when God is going to shut the door. Right now, we have an open door. Our Savior has the key that opens the door. There's the key of salvation. There's the key to service, and that's what I believe he's talking about here, and we'll see that later on in verse 8. But there's the key of service. He says that there are doors that God opens, and no man can shut it. 
And he says there are doors that he shuts that no man can open. All I'm trying to say tonight is our Savior represents himself in his character, that he has authority, that he's authentic, that he has power, and that he's, he's absolute, that he's holy in his way. And we need to pause for just a moment to thank God that he's holy. And we need to pause for just a moment to thank God he has power. And we need to pause for just a moment to thank God that he's true and he's faithful. I'm thankful tonight that though our government and the world governments seem to be... Um, faltering and wondering what to do about COVID-19. Aren't you glad tonight that our Savior is in control, that he has complete authority? And listen, that moment's going to come when he's going to take that key and he's going to open a door and show us the way. And I want you to understand tonight, we have a Savior who in his character can be adored and worshipped and honored. We see the Lord in his character. But quickly tonight, would you go with me notice in verses 8 to 11, we see our Savior, we see our Lord in his control. We see the Lord's control. As we're going through this experience with COVID-19, the statistical data coming out, over 1 million confirmed cases in the world, 3,500 here in the Bay Area alone, 60,000 plus deaths. Those are startling numbers. But if you're saved, the Lord's in control. Amen? God's in control. God's never out of control. God is, oh, listen, when Jesus died on the cross, the Lord was in control. And the Lord was telling this church in Philadelphia, which was known for its commerce and the spread of the Grecian culture, and a location that was favored by all governments, and three continents converged on that city, he was telling this church in Philadelphia, I want you to know there's some things I want you to do. I want you to know that these things I want you to do, that I'm in control, that I know exactly what to do. And listen, church, a little bit, we get a little bit overwhelmed right now because we wonder if the offerings are going to come in. We wonder how long we're going to be sheltered in place. We wonder when the curve will flatten. We wonder when things will get normal. We're concerned right now of a possible collapse of the United States and world economies. There's talk even about the fact we might even enter a new phase of a Great Depression that we've never seen before. We're wondering about all these things. I mean, there's a lot of things gripping us, and we think that we think the markets that are spiraling and oil that is bottoming out, and we think about the economy that's bottoming and all of these things going on, and job losses and these things, and we wonder, what, where's this all going to go? I remind you tonight that when a little bit of this pessimism comes in, and a little bit of these concerns and the factual data gets us, I want to remind you tonight that the Lord is in control. God is never out of control in this situation. And he's telling a church here, as we'll see the description about this church, a church that felt like it had such a little impact, that God was in control. I want you to see our Lord, his control. First of all, what you notice in verse 8, the Lord tells them he's in control through his confidence. Now, God had confidence in this church. But you notice verse 8, he says, I know thy works. Now, that comforts me tonight because the Lord knows what we can do and the Lord knows what we can't do. The Lord knows exactly what we have and he knows what we don't have. The Lord knows who makes up the church and the Lord knows who's coming into the church. The Lord knows who's out of the church, but God knows who's coming back into the church. His confidence is in this church. And I want you to notice, he says, I know thy works. And then he makes a statement that he makes three times. 
Behold. We find the word behold in verse 8, the word behold in verse 9, and the word behold in verse 11. Now, as I said last Sunday, as we looked at numbers, the word behold means to stop and to look fully into, to contemplate. Don't make a quick glance. Behold. Gaze upon. Take it in. Look with all your mind and all your heart. And he says, I know thy works. And he says, behold. And he says some things about this church that he wanted them to examine carefully or that he examined carefully. Notice our Savior speaks of this church. And in his confidence, he says the following. Number one, he refers to the obvious. He says to this church, notice verse 8. Thou hast a little strength. He speaks about a church that had little in the way of strength. It was obvious. It was in the midst of a thriving culture. Their offerings, in comparison to the gross domestic product of that city, was very small. Their membership, in comparison to the population of that city, was very small. They were little in strength. They were little in manpower. They were little in offerings. They were little in talent. They may have been little even in competency. But God knew that already. He saw the obvious. God knows we are little. God knows that we are little. We are little in size. And we are little in strength. And we are little in offerings. And we are little in impact. And we are little, but we are little in those ways. God, but God uses little things. He sees the obvious. He sees the little widow with her little might. And he sees that she puts in the offering, but he gives her, he gives acknowledgement to them. He sees the little lad with his five loaves and two fishes, but he gives acknowledgement to that. He sees the little maid who steers the Naaman to the prophet Elisha. God sees the little. Little is much when God is in it. He sees the obvious. Hey, I'm going to tell you tonight, God sees what little we are, but he can use us. And he acknowledges that. And he sees the obvious. Notice he not only refers to the obvious, but notice in verse 8, he also refers to their obedience. He says to this church at, at Philadelphia, Behold, I've set before thee an open door, uh, and he says, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength. Then he said, and hast kept my word. In verse 8, he talked about them keeping his word. And in verse 10, he talked about them keeping the word of my patience. This church, there were some things that were obvious. They were weak. They were little in strength. But this church was an obedient church. They kept his word. And let me help you tonight. Obey the Lord. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. They loved his word. They lived in his word. They labored in his word. Let me tell you something tonight. Obedient churches are churches God blesses. Obedient churches are churches that have their prayers answered. Obedient churches have a sterling testimony. Obedient churches have a tender heart. Obedient churches do what is right. Obedient churches are loving churches. Obedient churches love our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thou hast kept my word. I hope during this time you are keeping his word. You're memorizing scripture. You're following the stay connected. You're obeying his word. You're doing exactly what God wants you to do. He refers to their obvious. He refers to their obedience. Notice in verse 8, he refers to their openness. He said in verse 8, For thou hast kept my word. Would you notice the last phrase? 
and hast not denied my name. What a testimony. They had little strength, but they obeyed the Lord. Parents, let's teach our children to obey the Lord, to obey his word. Let's teach our children, let's teach ourselves to be open about our faith, to confess the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said about them there in the city of Philadelphia, thou hast not denied my name. Now I believe this church did everything they could to let everybody in the city of Philadelphia and the outskirts know there was a church there that loved Jesus. I think they did everything they could to be evangelistic. I think they did everything they could to tell people about the Lord. He said, I, I want to acknowledge that this church has been open. Thou hast not denied me. Thou, hast, thou art for me. He said he, they were making advancements through their praying. They made advancements through soul winning and missions. They confessed his name among men. This was the church that was open. This was the church that was obedient. I want you to notice in verse 8, this was the church he gave opportunities to. He said, Behold, I've set before thee an open door. No man can shut it. He said, Look at the open door I've given to you. In Latin... The two words, ab, portu, mean opportunity. And the phrase was coined back in the days when a ship, before it could come to harbor, had to wait a distance away and be carried in by the tide, a flood tide that would bring it in. For failure to do so, it would wind up grounding itself and would ruin itself and ruin the stern and so forth there and could wind up never getting back out and would be a damaged ship. And so a ship would wait out there in a distance off the outside of the port and would wait for the moment when it could ride the turn of the tide into the harbor. And we get our English word opportunity from that meaning. It meant that the captain and the crew were waiting for the opportune moment to ride the tide so they could come into port. And you see, tonight Jesus said to this church, they were ready to ride the tide. They're ready to seize the opportunity. They had a golden opportunity that was given them. Shakespeare, in a play that he wrote about Julius Caesar, took this same phrase as his background. And he wrote this, There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omit it, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and miseries. On such a full sea, we are now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. Here was a church that was strategically located where three continents converge. Here was a church that was prominent because of the spread of the Grecian culture, and it decided that it would be a church in the world, not a church where the world was in the church. It was a church that decided that it would seize the opportunities, and our Savior acknowledged them. He acknowledged that they were obedient. Here was a church that was obeying the Lord. They were kind of like a story I read about a man by the name of Sir Leonard Wood who once visited the king of France. And as he visited this king, the king was so pleased with Sir Leonard Wood, he said, Sir Wood, I'd like to invite you back for dinner. 
Now, in those days when, you, when the king gave you an invitation, you were supposed to respond back. You were supposed to RSVP. But Mr. Wood did not. And he showed up that next day, about an hour before the dinner, and the king was making his walk through the palace. And he saw Mr. Wood waiting there. And he said, Mr. Wood, he said, Sir Leonard, what are you doing here? And he said, well, your majesty, what do you mean, what am I doing here? You gave me an invitation to come to dinner, and I'm here for that dinner. But he said, but sir, you did not reply and answer to my invitation. And Mr. Wood made this statement. He made this statement so important. I want you to get this. He said this, a king's invitation is never to be answered, but to always be obeyed. A king's invitation is never to be answered, but always to be obeyed. And here was a church that was obeying its Lord. Here was a church that saw the opportunities God gave them. He put them in a strategic location. They, though they were little in strength, he said, I've set before thee an open door. Here was a church that before the close of that century realized it had an opportunity to get the gospel to as many people as it could. God's given us open opportunities. They were winning people to Christ. They had a window of opportunity to change the world, and they were. They were little in strength, but they knew that little is much when God is in it. Paul spoke about his open doors. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says, For a great door and effectual is open unto me. And there are many adversaries. When Paul wrote that, they were, they were on the cusp of having a great, the great Olympic Games and Athletic Games there in Corinth. And Paul was saying, there's a great door in effect. He said, crowds are coming here. They're coming from east and west, north and south. The Romans coming here, the Grecians coming here, the Jews coming here. He said, there's a great door in effect before me. He says, listen, I have an open door and I want to get the gospel. And I'm telling you right now, brother and sister in Christ, we may be during dark times, but we're living in a time of an open door. And if Jesus gave an open door to the church of Philadelphia, I remind you tonight, Jesus has given an open door to Heritage Baptist Church as well. We have little strength. And I pray every day and I thank God's face for our church. I think about God, we have such little strength, but our Lord knows we have little strength. God knows we have little capability. God knows we have little strength. And sometimes I get a little bit, I get a little bit just bent out of shape because I feel like we have little vision about what God wants to do. But I'm telling you tonight, God has set before us an open door and that open door, no man can shut in. We need to go through it right now. We have an open door for the gospel, Lord willing, for next Sunday for the Easter service. We have an open door to people at the forefront of fighting or assisting through COVID-19. We have an open door in foreign soil. We have an open door to serve people like never before. Listen, Paul said before me, it's an open door. Hey, Paul said another time, 2 Corinthians 2.12, Furthermore, when I come to Troy as to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Now, the Lord just gives you a little crack. That's an open door. One of our men was telling me this week, and I was so rejoicing in this. And one of his customers said, hey, you go to church. The stuff with COVID-19, how it's affecting my business, everything, it's overwhelming me. Doesn't the Bible say something about this? That church member, a faithful church member, told him about Bible prophecy. He seized upon the open door. I'm going to tell you something tonight. He says, I know thy works. I know what you can do. I know what you can't do. But God also knows what we won't do. And I'm saying to you tonight, there's an open door. Op or two. Let's ride the tide. Let's get on it. 
Let's stay on it. He talked about a church. He saw their obvious. He talked about this church. He saw their obedience. He saw this church. He talked about their openness. He saw this church and he said, I want you to know about the opportunities. Listen, our Lord had confidence in this church. But notice something else. Our Lord only had confidence in this church. Notice our Lord gives comfort to this church. He said in verse 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. They had adversaries. They had opposition. Every city's like that. We've mapped out our city. We have a section of our city is more hostile to us than other sections. And we have some section, so no, we just feel like, wow, I'd just soon stay over here. People are nice. But in Philadelphia, there were, there were, some, there were some Jews. And God said, God knew those synagogues there were giving the church some trouble. He said, I will make them the synagogues of Satan. He said, they're liars. They're telling lies about the gospel. They're telling lies about your church. He says, but I want you to know something. Look at the rest of verse 9. He said, uh, behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I love thee. You know what he's saying there? He's telling that church in Philadelphia that was a little bit exasperated because of adversarial situation. He said, I just want you to know I'm in control. I want you to know that they're not going to overcome you. He said, I want you to know I'm going to have the final say. I want you to know that though they're against you, I'm for you. I want you to know that I, I'm going to make sure that people know that they are not the real deal. I said, what you're doing is the real deal. You're preaching the truth, and you're representing me, and you're lifting me up. I will make them the synagogues of Satan. I will let people know they are not the truth. They are not the real deal. Listen, when we worry about the cults, and, and false religions and all those things, let us remind ourselves that we have the truth and God will take care of defending the truth. And he comforts them. He says, I want you to know they're going to bow down to you. I want you to know they're going to know I love you. And listen, tonight, take comfort in the fact, church, that though we have little strength, when we are obedient, when we seize the opportunities, when we openly proclaim his name, listen, our Lord comes alongside of us, and he says, don't worry about it. He says, I'm for you. He comforts us. He encourages us. And be encouraged right now. We have a Lord and Savior who loves his church, who loves the nursery, who loves our children's ministry, who loves our teenagers, who loves our young adults, who loves our college students, who loves our married people, who loves our older people. He loves every single person in this congregation, and he wants us to know, I love you. He was so in control, he gave them comfort. He was in so control. Notice in verse 10, we see his keeping. Now they needed to know this. Because the Roman Empire was scrutinizing churches. And persecution was still going on. We saw that in some of the other churches. He wanted them to know in verse 10, don't worry, 
I'm keeping you. In verse 10, he says, because I was kept the word of my patience. He's saying to this church, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now you study this. I don't have time to build this out and, and take, and as much as I like to. I will in a future service. But that time he's talking about the hour of temptation. Now you marked this, you Bible students tonight. The hour of temptation he's talking about is the great tribulation, which is just around the corner. He says that hour of temptation is that hour of trial. It's the day of his great wrath. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's the great tribulation of God. The saints are raptured out. We are gone. And he's telling the church, he's giving that church comfort. He says, I want you to know, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. Now, I just, I'm just concluding about this. The true church, the true church will keep his word. The true church will preach his word because I was kept the word of my patience. I really believe right now that this COVID-19 is bringing out the best and the worst. And I believe this COVID-19 is helping us to realize churches that really mean business with God or they're just out there to be a bunch of clowns trying to get a name for themselves instead of building the, lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. And he says here in verse 10, because I kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. And I've got good news for you. The church is not going to go through the great tribulation. He says the hour of temptation shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now you've got to look at those words very carefully because in Revelation it talks about those earth dwellers during the tribulation time. I've got good news to tell you tonight. We are going to be raptured out. We are not going through the great tribulation. Hallelujah for that. Amen. He told this church, I'm, I'm keeping you. I have confidence in you. I want to comfort you. Notice in verse 11, the Lord is so in control, he tells us about his coming. He tells them about the tribulation. And they knew about that because there were the writings of Scripture already. The, the, the tribulation was nothing new. The Old Testament tells us all about it. The time of Jacob's trouble, Daniel's prophecies. Isaiah's prophecies, Jeremiah's prophecies, Ezekiel's prophecies, prophecies of the minor prophets. And nestled with that, he wanted to remind them about his coming. And he said in verse 11, Behold, look steadfastly, look gazingly. He said, Behold, I come quickly. And that's an important phrase. He says, Look for my coming. Look for my coming, Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, look for my coming. He said, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Now, I think there's a couple things he's telling us as he's giving them, as he's, as, as he's showing he's in control. Number one, he reminds them of the speed of his coming. It, he said, I'm coming quickly. He said, I'm coming quickly. Hey, listen, Jesus could come any moment. When he comes, he's going he's to come quickly. Secondly, he's telling us about to be steadfast in his coming. He says, hold on fast to which thou hast hast. He says, hold on fast to your works. Hold on fast to the doctrine. Hold on fast to your faith and fidelity to Jesus Christ. And it's kind of interesting to notice in verse 11, he says that no man take thy crown. Now we know from studying the scriptures, there's five crowns that the Lord speaks of. In verse 11, he speaks about a crown. What crown is he talking about? Is he using crown singular to talk about all five? 
Or one that's singular. I believe in the context, if you notice very carefully verse 11, I think he's talking about one crown that he was concerned about. I believe that's the crown of righteousness that's given to all those who love his appearing. Because he says in the context, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You know what the Lord is saying? He says, listen, I want you to look for my coming. Look in the eastern skies. Look for my coming. Don't get your eyes off that. He says, behold, look for that blessed hope. I can come at any moment. Don't get distracted by all the peripheral things going on. Don't get distracted and obsessed with other things. He says, behold, I'm coming. He says, hold on fast to that. Lest some man, you should lose your crown. He says, listen, Paul said this. He says, the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me that crown of righteousness because I love his appearing. And not to me only, but for all those who love his appearing. I'm saying to you tonight, we need to love his appearing. We need to say every night as we put our head on the pillow and as we wake up every morning, Lord, I'm looking forward to your coming. Lord, I love your coming. I can't wait to see you. It's like a, husband, like a bride, bride and a bridegroom getting ready for their wedding day, and that day comes. They just can't wait to be brought together. They can't wait to be joined at the altar. They can't wait to give their exchange your vows and be called husband and wife. And that ought to be true of his church, that we can't wait for Jesus to come for us there. Hold on fast. Hey, Christian friend, if you're starting to waver you're starting to get weak. You're getting indifferent, and I'm warning you, don't get indifferent during this COVID-19. Don't let social distancing make you spiritually distant. Don't let it make you savior distant. Don't let it make you supplication distant. Don't let it make you scripturally distant. Get close to the Lord more than ever before. Because he said, hold fast. Thy crown, that no man take it. Alexander McLaren, the great commentator, wrote this. The apostolic church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death in heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for cleavage in the sky called glory. Amen. Love is appearing. We see the Lord's character. We see the Lord's control. But you notice as we close tonight in verse 12, we see the Lord's compensation. The Lord acknowledges his church that's faithful, that lives for him, that honors him. Hey, friend, God orchestrated what I'm going to tell you. I'm going through a series in 1 Corinthians 3. We'll be starting 1 Corinthians 3. We've been in Isaiah. We're near Revelation. And in 1 Corinthians 3, in about two or three weeks, two or three, two or three services from now on Wednesday night, we'll be looking at the rewards of the Christian at the judgment seat of Christ. It's kind of interesting how it dovetails right here with this. And I'm telling you tonight, please, please, Live for God. Don't wind up at the judgment seat of Christ and everything you built on was wood, hay, and stubble and it burns and you have nothing to lay at Jesus' feet. Make sure what you're building on is gold, silver, and precious stones. And this church 
that Jesus saw the obvious. They had little strength. And this church, which was obedient, they kept his word. And this church, which openly proclaimed his name. And this church that he blessed with opportunities and was living on the cusp of opportunities and taking advantage of opportunities. A church that was like Hudson Taylor who prayed every day, Lord, give me wide usefulness. It was a church that kind of adhered to the, a quote that Francis Bacon said. He said, a wise man will make more opportunities than he finds. Here was a church that wasn't living in promised land. Here was a church that was getting it done. And I want you to notice as we close tonight, the Lord's compensation. Number one, would you notice? He makes us a pillar. He makes us a pillar. Look at verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Now that's a blessing. Those pagans in Philadelphia, when a citizen did something great, monumental, and noteworthy. They made a pillar and put his name on it. And people walked into that pagan, that pagan temple, a temple dedicated to a Caesar, dedicated to one of their gods, and they saw this individual's name there, they saw this pillar, the person's name there, and what the deed was for. You know our Savior's saying here, this so encourages me. Him that overcometh, he that's a Nike Christian, he that's a victor, he that's living by faith, he that stays on track, he that doesn't skip church, he that doesn't miss his prayer time, he that doesn't miss his read, reading, Bible reading time, he that is faithful to God, he that has a good spirit, he who follows the faith of their pastor, he says, look at here, him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Listen, in all eternity, God is going to recognize those who are faithful as pillars in his church. Let me tell you something tonight. Peter was a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. A pillar recognizes authority and leadership and influence. You know what God is saying there? When that new Jerusalem in heaven, there'll be some old boys and girls there well, men and boys, men and women who stayed faithful, they overcame. They resisted the temptation to conform to the world. They resisted the temptation to throw it away. They resisted the temptation to turn back like Lot's wife. They resisted the temptation to be bought like, like Gehazi. They were like Naboth. I'm not going to give you my vineyard. You can't have it. He says, to him that overcometh, will I make a temple, make, make a pillar in the temple of my God. And then he says something else. Did you notice this in verse, verse 12? And he will no more, notice this, he will no more go out. If you lived in Philadelphia, the land there was very, always shifted. It always moved. People live in earthquake-prone areas, they understand that. And these people that experienced that earthquake, it passed down from generation to generation. They were jittery. Every time there was a tremor, every time there was a movement, listen, they'd leave the city for a period of time. People went in, people went out, and people went in. People went out, 
And people went in. You know what Jesus is saying there? When I, when, you, when, I, when I do that, he says, where I'm going to put you, where I'm acknowledging you, he says, you don't have to worry about going out. You'll no more go out. You're going to be stable right there. You know what he's telling us there? You keep his word. You lift high his name. You take advantage of the opportunities. He's going to take care of you not having to worry about going out. Listen, you know what? People get worried. They think, well, you know what? Things are going bad here. I'm running out of money. I'm going to move somewhere else. The Bible is fraught and filled with stories of people that left when they should not have left. Let me tell you tonight, if you're thinking about leaving, you better leave because it's the will of God, not leave because, because you want to leave. That's what happened to Elimelech and Naomi in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and it was disastrous for them. Every time someone in the Bible went when they were not supposed to go, it was always a disaster for them. It will make us pillars. We'll go out no more. Secondly, he marks us as his possession. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down from heaven, from my, uh, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I'll write upon him my new name. He's saying here, as a pillar in God's temple, we have his name. You know what he's saying there? He wants everyone to know you and I belong to him. The him that overcometh, he wants people to be re to recognize we are his possession. He makes us and he marks us. I like the fact that he makes us. He's the one that makes us, and he's the one that marks us. He wants to make sure that everything that we identify with shows that we identify with him. He gives us that new name. He shows that we identify with his church. He shows that we identify as a citizen of heaven. He shows that we identify as a born-again believer. He shows and represents without any shame to everyone in heaven, this is someone who stood for me. His name will I confess before my Father, which is in heaven. He's acknowledging our obedience our faith, and our faithfulness. This was the church with the golden opportunities. Heritage, do you see the opportunities God's given us? Or are you just waiting? Hey, the tide's here. Op for two. Let's ride the tide now. Let's get on it now. Take advantage of the opportunities. Don't blow it. You say, well, that's not my personality. Die to self. Let Jesus take control. Let the Lord take control. William Ward said, opportunities are like sunrises. If you wait too long, you miss them. If he opens the door, we must work. And where he opens the door, we must go. And when he shuts the door, we must wait. Church, would you help me seize the golden opportunities? They're right next to you. They're called family and friends and neighbors. They're through our church outreach program. Please help me next Sunday get a broad, large audience of people to watch our live stream services. Please direct people to prayer works so that we can pray with them and lead them to Christ. Please be humble. Have a servant's heart. Keep his word. Keep his name. See the opportunities. And tonight, there's a door open for every person who needs to get saved. 
you're not 100% sure tonight you're saved and going to heaven. You need to get saved tonight. The time for putting it off needs to stop right now because there's a day coming, just like he did with Noah, the Lord's going to shut the door. And when he shuts the door, you can't open it. We see the same story in Matthew 25 about the story, the parable about the ten virgins. Those virgins who were foolish and did not have enough oil. In fact, they lacked oil for their lamps. It was too late. They couldn't come in. They couldn't find their way. And I'm going to tell you tonight, if you're not saved, you keep putting it off, putting it off. When there's a day coming, the door will be shut and you can't come in. Get saved tonight. God loves you. God wants you to be saved. You can repent of your sins and by faith call on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. 